Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you as always. So glad once again to be here on the podcast with you. Wherever you're listening, whatever you're doing right now, I just pray that God's blessing be upon you. And I'm so excited that we're going to be diving in to another lesson in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ as we continue this chronological study throughout the Gospels. So today is podcast 59, and the title is, Who Do You Say Jesus Is? See, I believe, friends, that this is not just foundational, but is pivotal for every single one of us. This is one of the most important questions that you and I have to answer in life is who is Jesus? So today we're going to be looking at Matthew 16, 5 through 20, Mark 8, 13 through 30, and Luke 9, 18 through 21. Now to bring you up to speed, Jesus just returns back from feeding the 4,000 in the district of Tyre and Sidon in Matthew 15, 29 through 39. Now if you remember, Jesus went out of his way to reach the Gentile people. He was intentionally trying to avoid the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they were in hot pursuit of Jesus. So in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, the Pharisees and Sadducees finally come up and face Jesus one-on-one again after he had just rebuked them a, a few passages before this, if you check out previous podcasts leading up to this one today. And they start demanding for a particular sign, meaning they're saying, what you've done thus far, what you've done so far as a quote-unquote Messiah It doesn't fit. It doesn't match. It's not meeting our expectations. So we want you right here, right now. They put them on the spot. Show us a sign. So you can see how Jesus responds to that. Now, today's podcast, we're going to look at three separate, but again, conjoined events that take place. The first one is beware of the leaven from the false teachers. This takes place in Matthew 16, 5 through 12, Mark 8. 13 through 21. The second event we'll be looking at on today's podcast is a blind man that is healed in Mark 8, 22 through 26. And finally, a very famous passage about Peter and the rock. Remember on this rock, I will build my church. This is in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, Mark 8, 27 through 30 and Luke 9, 18 through 21. So let's jump right in to see what the scriptures have to say to us today. Starting Matthew 16, 5 through 12 and Mark 8, 13 through 21, the first event of Jesus warning his disciples to beware of the leaven and false teachers. Notice what it says here in verse 14 of Mark 8. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And then it says in Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Mark's account, it also adds, and the leaven of Herod. Then it says in Mark 8, verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, O you of little faith, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do not see, and having ears do not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to Jesus, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, 
do you not yet understand? Now, the end of Matthew chapter 16, verses 11 through 12 says this, How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So in this first event, let's dive right into the lesson that Jesus has for the disciples and has for us today. In Matthew 16, verse 5, notice it says that he reached the other side. Now, this was referring to the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you've been following along, or if you know anything about the life and history of Jesus, you know that he grew up in this region. And he oftentimes, as we're going through a chronological sequential order of events that occurred in Jesus' life, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he oftentimes takes the disciples back to their homeland, to where they all grew up. And we're told here in Mark 8, 14, that they had forgotten to bring bread. Now remember, after Jesus had fed the 4,000 and the disciples, you know, were going through all this uh, different parts, you know, of the countryside with Jesus, they've been on their feet, you know, for countless hours each and every day, they're exhausted. And so in their mind, when Jesus was saying, hey, you know, about the leaven and the bread and stuff, they're thinking Jesus was upset with them about forgetting to bring food. So logistically, just, you know, hey, make sure you guys are being responsible within our travel schedules to have certain things, again, nutrition, you know, where we're going to sleep, you know, uh, how long we're going to be there, where we're heading afterwards. So in their mind right now, when Jesus says this, it's almost like a letdown to Jesus. But as we'll see, it had nothing to do with actual food. Instead, it's an opportunity that Jesus uses by using leaven to broadcast it in a greater light about the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Matthew 16, verse 6, he says, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now remember, as mentioned back in the parables of Matthew 13, leaven is often used to represent sin. And if you look back in Exodus 12, verse 8 and Exodus 12, 15 through 20, leaven is used as corruption. So in essence, what Jesus is saying to them is when you look at the teachings of the religious leaders and of Herod himself, who had many supporters who were Sadducees, they were spreading, causing much harm to the people. Barclay in his commentary writes, quote, it was the Jewish metaphorical expression of leaven for an evil influence. To the Jewish mind, leaven was always symbolic of evil. Leaven stood for an evil influence liable to spread through life and to corrupt it, end quote. If you look at the teachings of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, notice how he uses leaven. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul also writes in Galatians 6 verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, Matthew 16 verse 8, this phrase, O you of little faith. Now, Jesus calls out the disciples and he calls them out because of the lack of remembrance of what he did to feed thousands upon thousands of people. If you remember what he did for the feeding of the 5,000, and then just recently we saw him feeding the 4,000, when Jesus looked at the disciples about what should we do, what do you guys have to give to these people? Nobody in that context and that situation said, well, Jesus, do what you did in feeding the 5,000. You're the source. You're the answer. Why don't we do that? And instead, they're just like, well, this is what we have. We don't have enough. So now they weren't getting that. And so now fast forward, and he's talking about leaven to mean the false teaching of the religious leaders. And they're just fixated on actual tangible physical food. 
So Jesus calls him out saying, oh, you little faith, meaning you have to see things in a spiritual perspective, my friends. That's what he's conveying. And just the same applies to you and I today, even as Christians with a biblical perspective, we can oftentimes miss that, not even focus on that because our tendency is to have little faith, not big faith. In our human flesh, we struggle with doubt and with fear and with lust and all those things can blind us or prevent us from having an effective faith. So in Matthew 6, verse 30, in Matthew 8, 26, in Matthew 14, 31, in Matthew 16, 8 here, Jesus calls out people because of their lack of faith. So again, Jesus's concern wasn't about what they needed to eat, right, to in order to survive, but rather it was a matter of what they needed to do in order to confront and be aware first of the false teaching that is around them in order to confront it, right? That was what was the most important thing here in Mark 8, 15. David Guzik put it like this in his commentary, quote, Jesus charged the disciples with three things. Number one, ignorance, because they don't understand that he was using material things, that being leaven, to illustrate spiritual things, the dangerous teachings and practices of the Sadducees and Pharisees. Number two, unbelief, because they were overly concerned with the supply of bread when they had seen Jesus miraculously provide bread on several previous occasions. And number three, forgetfulness, because they seemed to forget what Jesus had done before in regard to providing bread, end quote. So Matthew 16, verse 12, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now the disciples get it. They realized that Jesus was warning them of false teaching and they needed to rely on him for spiritual food. Remember Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a powerful lesson that Jesus had with his disciples as they were just traveling, as they were spending time together. He was concerned when you're seeing the impact that he was having in the lives of people as they're crying out to him for deliverance, for healing. They're demon-possessed, they're demon-oppressed, they're afflicted with many illnesses and ailments. They were blinded, they were being led astray by these religious leaders, and Jesus was bringing hope and restoration. He was fulfilling prophecy, Isaiah 61. He was the anointed one, he was coming, he's the son of man, Daniel 7, 14. And so he takes opportunity to make sure because he could tell, just like you and I sometimes as mature Christians, when you're around other uh, younger uh, Christians in the faith, that they get some of it. And it's our job to come alongside them and to counsel them, provide wisdom, to give them proper understanding the context of scripture. It's something we try to do here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. And so Jesus can tell that they were struggling and that they were still being you know, led astray with some things. We're going to see that in later podcasts to come, that it was a constant struggle sometimes as Jesus was preparing these disciples to become apostles. So just like you, you and me, friends, we need to make sure that we are not overlooking the spiritual lessons that God puts right in front of us. So that's event number one. Now we transition in Mark 8, 22 through 26 of this blind man that is healed. Mark writes, verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. 
his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now notice here in verse 22 that Jesus now comes to Bethsaida. Now this was a village that was located on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was the eastern side, uh, not far, if you remember, from the feeding of the 5,000. This village is also home of Peter, Andrew, and Philip, according to John 1, 44. So again, I think that's important just to point out because oftentimes people think that when the disciples, you know, they left everything, they left their nets and they followed Jesus, that they never came back home. That's clearly not the case. We see over and over again that they would go back to Jesus's hometown. So it was a, it was a time for the disciples to rest, to see their families, to be with friends, to reflect, to fellowship together as they would go back out again. Now, as they're going back home, a blind man came begging, and these people are begging Jesus to touch him. Now, before we move on any further, it's important to, to point out that oftentimes throughout the teaching of Jesus, we see these people that are not mentioned by name. We don't know much about their story. They come to Jesus with great faith. And so this man, this blind man who has these people who are supporting him, they come directly to Jesus with faith. We saw the disciples just in the previous event. They did not have the faith that Jesus was expecting from them, if you will. But here, a man comes to Jesus who's not a disciple directly, but indirectly perhaps. And he has such great faith in Jesus to be healed, believing that he can do it. And so what does Jesus do? He takes the blind man, the blind man by the hand and he leads him out of the village and then he spits on his eyes and he lays his hands on him and he asks him, do you see anything? First off, you think, what are you doing? You're, you're like taunting me. You're spitting on me, you know, doing these weird gestures, you know, kind of these ritual kind of things and thinking, what kind of nut job is this? You can oftentimes think in people's minds, you know, how weird is all of this? But here's what's fascinating in verse 23 of Mark 8. This healing took place in stages for a reason. You see, Jesus uses this to illustrate the progression required to overcome spiritual blindness. Just like the gradual healing of this blind man to see, so too, here's a point, my friends, did the disciples' understanding of the spiritual matters around them have to progress for the better. And that's the case for all of us. It's called sanctification. We were constantly maturing and growing, or at least that's what we're called to do in obedience as we're obeying God, as we're listening to God, as we're fulfilling his will in our lives, not our will, but his will be done. We grow in the process. And as we grow, we mature to a level that we can then take what we have been taught as we've been humbled. And as our faith has been sharpened through trials and through various tribulations and through uh, the testing of our faith and to uh, you know, the advancement and through study and small groups and prayer time and praying for the Holy Spirit to fill us and direct us and convict us and guide us. When we go through all of these things, the idea is for us to be more mature than when we first began. And so Jesus is showing this progression with this physical blind man, just like he took the lack of physical food and uses the leaven to then speak to something on a greater level about spiritual corruption, false teaching, he shows the disciples, he shows the audience of people, here's a man of faith who believes that he can heal him. And he does it in stages to say, we got to continue to grow. In verse 24, the man says, I see, but they look like trees. So I think this implies in context that this man at one time was not born blind. 
he was probably able to see it some at some point. But as I mentioned before, oftentimes in that culture, people uh, suffer with blindness due to the sun, due to irritations, certain elements, they, the impurities, uncleanliness, um, the sandstorms. So there was a lot of things that contributed to the blindness in that culture at the time in the first century. So we don't know what causes man to be blind. So he was able to gradually start seeing again. I think, again, that speaks to what I've just been talking about is that sometimes people start understanding. They may not see it fully and clearly, but their perspective on certain matters starts being cleared up. It starts making more sense. And that's the case with this man and that we can use that as an illustration for spiritual blindness to finally seeing things the way that God intended. And so we're told here in verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. So Jesus does one last touch and his sight, the Bible says, was restored and he saw everything clearly. Isn't that a powerful way to put it? And he saw everything clearly. So this final touch of Jesus, which was requested by the blind man from the start, my friends, eliminates the blindness and restores him to complete sight. What a powerful story that we see here in Mark chapter 8. This now leads us to the final event, Peter the Rock. Now this takes place in Matthew 16, 13 through 20, Mark 8, 27 through 30, and Luke chapter 9, 18 through 21. So for time, I'm just going to stick to Matthew chapter 16 and kind of, again, as always, jump around to the other uh, parallel passages. But in Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 13, it writes, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, here's what's interesting, my friends, before I continue. When you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 18, Luke writes, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, back to to Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, notice the disciples said, Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So here in Matthew 16, verse 13, Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So once again, Jesus removes himself to a Gentile populated area that was about 30 miles from Bethsaida which is approximately about a 14-hour trip. So this is about a a two-day trip for the disciples and Jesus, a trip that, if you remember, Jesus took only uh, one other time. Now, it's important to note that Mount Hermon is located in Caesarea near the source of the Jordan. Now, Herod Philip was a tetrarch of that area. So we're told here in, in Luke 9, 18, as Jesus was praying, he asked this question, Matthew 16, 13, who do the people say the Son of Man is. Now, here's what's awesome about this question that Jesus asks the disciples. He actually gives the answer. Jesus using, by using the Son of Man, he's using the self-designation 
from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that speaks to his humble beginnings. The Son of Man is a phrase used of the authority that the Son of Man will have on earth because he is God. And, will t- and, and it also references the future reign as king. So he's responding by asking this question to the, to the disciples after he was praying. Who do the people say that I am? Referencing him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now in verse 14 in Matthew 16, the disciples give him three options. The people are saying that you're perhaps John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or even a fourth one, but it doesn't really get into specifics or some other prophet. So up to this point, what we get a sense of is that most of the population that Jesus has impacted up to this point in his ministry believe him to be some type of resurrected prophet of old. Remember, John the Baptist had just been recently beheaded by Herod. And if you look back at John the Baptist, he was referred to be like an Elijah by Jesus in Matthew eleven fourteen. Now, when you take a look at Elijah, many people perhaps believe Jesus to be Elijah because we're told in Luke 1, 13 through 17 that he came in his spirit. And also because there's a prophecy in Malachi 4, 5 through 6 that states that he will return prior to the day of the Lord. Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, Jeremiah, who was a prophet that was called uh, by people to repent, remember he was telling people, the people of Judah, to repent, and he he called out a lot of the, the religious leaders of the day, the false teaching. Remember, Jesus was doing that as well, so it was likened to that of Jeremiah. So all these views point to people believing that Jesus was a prophet who would somehow, some way, deliver them from the coming judgment of the Romans. So that's pretty much where... Uh, the, the pulse of the, 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 the multitudes of people were at. Now, Jesus says to the disciples, now he gets more specific in Matthew 16, 15, but who do you say that I am? See, Jesus gets specific and wants to see if his disciples believe he is God. Remember, he was just talking about false teaching. He just healed a blind man in stages to speak to the spiritual progression as we're seeing here right now with these questions. Now, this was after, remember, Jesus did all of these great things, feeding them of the 5,000, all these miracles, speaking about being the bread of life, illustrating spiritual blindness. And so Peter replies in response to Jesus, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Peter speaks directly to the divine nature of Christ. He uses that term, which means the anointed one in Hebrew, it's the Meshach. Now there are historical and archeological reasons I think this is important to point out as we look at the text of Scripture, my friends. There's a lot of historical and archaeological reasons why Jesus took his disciples along this way to ask this specific question. Remember, they're going way out of their way, almost a two-day trip, and Jesus asked this question there. Now, before the name change of the city to Caesarea, right, from Philip II and 3 BC, before that, it was called Peneus. Now, this was named after the Greek god Pan, where if, if you, when you go back to this period of time, this is where um, a worship temple was built at the base of the rocky cave and then where the spring came, came out of. And they would offer sacrifices to Pan. Now, legend speaks of Pan being able to cross over to Hades and back. Thus, many people believe that the base of this cave was an access point to Hades. And there was also a white marble temple that was built to the godhead of Caesar, Now, considering the historical context of where Jesus was at in history and asking this definitive point of who do you say that I am? And they're saying you are the Messiah. You are the true and living God. Perhaps this explains why Jesus took his disciples all the way to Caesarea 
to point out that he is indeed the one true God, not like the idols like Pan, and that this statement that Peter makes will be the profession that will build his coming church, that will endure in the midst of the many false worship centers that will come in the future. Jesus responds to the disciples, particularly Peter, and he says in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Peter had witnessed the miracles of Jesus. He had heard all of these messages going all the way back to when his brother came to him and says, we have found the Messiah. So this declaration was by divine inspiration and beyond the lies and the conjectures of the religious leaders. And so Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now this rock, this term, the Jewish men who are steeped in Old Testament scripture, they recognize that rock is a symbol of God. If you go back to Deuteronomy 32 verse four, he is the rock, his work is perfect. Psalm 18 verse two, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. So one commentary, when you're investigating the term that Jesus uses here now, uh, Petros, which means a stone and upon this rock, Petra, a large rock, he says, I will build my church. Jesus had given Simon the name, the new name that is, of Peter in John 1:42, which means a stone. Now the Aramaic form is Cephas, which also means a stone. So everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and confesses him as the son and God and savior is a living stone, we're told in 1 Peter 2 verse 5. Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the rock in which the church is built. The Old Testament prophets said so in Psalm 118 verse 22, Isaiah 28, 16. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 21, 42, and so did Peter and the other apostles in Acts 4, 10 through 12. Paul also stated that the foundation for the church is Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 3, 11. So this foundation was laid by the apostles and the prophets as they preached Christ to the lost. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, and Ephesians 2, verse 20. So when you look at what Jesus was saying, he says, I'm the rock. You go through Old Testament teachings and you're seeing that consisting throughout the teachings of the New Testament. So this interpretation from the Catholic Church that this means that Peter, in essence, is viewed as the first pope who will build the church himself is completely and totally false. We do not see that in the context. So when you see here now in Matthew 16, verse 19, that Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven now. This passage of scripture, this one verse has been completely and totally taken out of context in so many different ways. The prosperity doctrine uses it a certain way and other people use it another. Well, let me just give you a better translation that comes from William's translation. It says, quote, whatsoever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatsoever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. Now this term keys symbolizes authority or access. So in essence, Jesus was giving Peter the authority to open the door of faith to Jews and to Gentiles. Remember, Peter, he would be the one who will speak publicly on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He will be the one to preach to the Samaritans in Acts 8, 14, and also to the Gentiles in Acts 10, saying, that which, was you, that, that which was unclean is now clean according to God. So this phrase, those on earth shall be loose in heaven, this phrase speaks to what rabbis would speak to the people. They would bound or prohibit and loose or permit them in a particular law. So Jesus was giving his disciples who would become his apostles to be the ones who would lay the foundation and set the rules for the early church, according to Ephesians 2, 
verse 20. That's what that passage means. It does not mean anything in context to oftentimes people use in big things in prayer as well as using it for prosperity's sake. We see in context of scripture, it was about giving authority to symbolize the access that God would give the future church to have here on earth. So then as we wrap things up, we're told here in verse 20 that Jesus strictly charges the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. This was not a time that the disciples would use and just go right out there and start telling the people to correct them on their false views of Jesus. This was a time for the disciples. Jesus was preparing them to become apostles who will one day launch his church. So as we close on today's podcast, my friends, I pray as we saw in these three different events, that there's any spiritual blindness in your life that you just cry out to God and say, God, clear things up to me. Show me your truth. And may you be bold and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to the people that are around you. God has given you, my friends, as a Christian, he has given you authority You have access to him here on earth. I pray that you will continue to spread the truth of his word, that you will continue to be a part of the body of Christ so that you can make disciples for his glory. As always, I pray this podcast is a blessing to you, my friends. Thank you so much for tuning in on today's podcast. I can't wait to see you on the next one. Until then, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening and keep standing strong in the word of God.